Hi everybody, welcome back to the latest edition of our class in Perkea Vote. Uh, last week, we concluded our two uh, sheer mini-series on the spiritual value of work, looking first at, let's say, uh, a theory of the value that is within work, that work itself in a, as a kind of way of, me of a metaphor for what it means to engage in uh, your spiritual activities, and also to find the spirituality within your working life. And that's not just jobs, but also all the ways that we deploy and organize effort and exertion in, uh, in anticipation or to result in something meaningful. Um, and then the second week, we looked at what the kind of psychological implications of that would be, is to view all of our lives as something um, of potentially infinite worth that could easily redound to uh, overwhelming or an immense amount of pressure, feeling uh, burnt out, you know, in a contemporary uh, locution. So we looked at ways in which uh, Torah and the rabbis interpreting this tradition of, uh, um, of everyone is obligated in the work, but no one is allowed to desist from it, right? Right? We're, we all have to pitch in and do our, do our part, but we're also not obligated to, uh, to finish it, to try to come to a sense of reasonable expectations for ourselves and how to create a culture of sustainability in the way that we devote ourselves in our, uh, in our activities. Today, I wanted to take these kind of like theoretical things that we've, uh, we've, we've, we've uh, looked at, namely how to view our effort and exertion as a spiritual activity, and then also how to process that and organize our time and our effort and our intention and our energy towards sustainable results, to now apply it directly to our spiritual lives. How can we look at our Torah study? How can we look at our mitzvah work? How can we look at our prayer lives? How can we look at the ways in which we try to bring goodness and righteousness to the world? How can we think about these things, not just as kind of individual activities, but rather as a vocation of sorts, as um, a plan and as a, a way to, that we organize our lives? So uh, this is where the rubber hits the road. It's so where Pirkei Avot is uh, providing some, I think, not just, um, let's say, theoretical advice, but also really trying to give us tools towards application in our religious lives. So let's get into it. <clears throat> Can everyone see the texts okay? Zoom, zoom, zoom. Okay, so we're looking at um, a very famous passage um, from two rabbis who might be the same rabbi. Why do I think that? Well, we'll get to that later. Uh, first, we'll look at the first passage of Ben Bagbag. Actually, I think we'll look at them both. Uh, first, we'll look at the passage from Ben Bagbag, and then we'll look at the teaching from Ben Heihei. Uh, very fun names. And, um, and we said, we, in a previous class, when we looked at the, um, the Brisa Rebbe Akiva, right, which is the sixth pseudo-chapter of Pirkei Avot, we noted that the true tractate of Pirkei Avot ends with chapter 5. So these are actually the concluding teachings of the original edition of Pirkei Avot. So have that in the back of our mind, too, and we'll get to that at the end. This is not the last class in our mini-series, although maybe it's worth no announcing. The, the class will be wrapping up at the, uh, near the end of July, so uh, we'll have advance notice of that. Um, but we will be um, looking, I think, at these teachings with a sense of why are these kind of resounding 
concluding words that are being uh, that are being included at the end of the tractate. So first, let's look at Ben Bagbag. Ben Bagbag says, "Who wants to read this?" Let's do it in Hebrew first, because it's worth having the poetry of the language. Ellen, I know you've been practicing your Hebrew. Uh, I'll read it. <coughs> ben Bagbag Omer, Hafoch Ba, Bahafoch Ba, Bichola Ba, Uva Techezei Vsev Uvle Va, Umina Lo Tazua Shein Lacha Mija Tova Hemena. And this is where I apologize, because part of that was in Aramaic. But still, it's Judeo-Aramaic, and it's based strongly in Hebrew. So you did a great job adapting to that. But let's try to get the uh, English part, the, the English, the Hebrew parts first. I think we can get it. L'hafoch, like hafuch, uh, means opposite, right? Hefech means opposite in Hebrew. So what does the verb l'hafoch mean, you think? Well, don't look at the English. Let's try to figure this out ourselves. So it's see, you know, it's if it's the opposite, it's to reverse it, to turn it over. So turn it over and turn it over, decholaba, because all is in it. Uva techze, chazon means riya, uh, means vision. So in peer within it, look within it, v'sivu v'leba. Grow old and seasoned with it. Grow old and gray with it. Age with it. Even in a way like wither with it. Uminalo tazua. Do not depart from it. Don't abandon it. She'ein l'cha tova himena. For there is no greater measure or greater characteristic than it. Okay. The, the, the Hebrew is, or the Semitic, is is rhythmic it's terse but it's pungent it's very powerful i think in the way and a lot of these teachings are kind of like cohen's of sorts not co cohen's like adam cohen but like cones like zen masters kind of terse riddles right these are very tersely aphoristic these are very aphoristic teachings and there's there's a lot of space because a lot of it is just very small phrases with lots of open space around them as it were yeah lauren i heard somebody okay never mind i'm going nutso all right so how do we how do we just react to this how do we respond anything come up for us turn it over and turn it over for all is in it let's just start with that first clause what does it mean? What, is, what do you think Ben Bagbag is calling on us to do? Um, look into it carefully. Just, you know, really, really do it. In modern terms, do a deep dive into it. Okay, great. So do a deep dive. And, and you get that from the language. Where do you see that? So what, what are Just we turning over? Turn it over. In. Uh -huh. What's being turned over, though, in that reading? It is referring to... So could the it be Torah? Okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, if, I think it, it, Torah, it is like good. It, Torah. it is Torah. It is for sure Torah. But more when I say okay. what's, but in relating to Torah in that way, what is being turned over in your reading of it? In my reading, you would you would look at the Sukim, and you would really really concentrate on the shot and you would look at into the commentaries to see what is said about it so that you do 
as much study of those psukim as is possible. Okay, and, so and thoroughness. Also your own meaning too. Yeah. Okay, thoroughness, availing yourself of, uh, of, of resources. Okay, paying attention to how you're responding to it. Great. How else are we taking this? What does it mean to turn it over, turn it over? Looking at different perspectives, trying to look at different interpretations. Okay, great. So that there's a notion that Torah is, you know, has many different sides to it, as we're going to get to later, right? So the notion, like, just because you come to one reading, maybe don't stop there because there's other ways you can be looking at it, right? The most common phrase we see in the literature of Midrash is devarachir, right? Another reading, another way of thinking about this, another comment. Okay, great. When it says all is in it, how do you take that very kind of very strong claim, right? Very totalizing claim. So when Ben Bagwag says all is in it, what does he mean? All of what? All knowledge. Okay. All knowledge, like of the world. Everything you need to know. Okay, ah, okay, so everything you need to know is in there. Okay, so like it's a, an almanac of sorts. It's your one-stop shop, because all, all you need to know is in there. Great. What else do you take to mean all is in it? We're going to see other, um, we're going to have, we're going to encounter interpretations of this that are, let's say, more grounded in textual hermeneutics, right? What it means to engage and interpret the text. We're going to see um, ways to take this in which it's actually a, a bridge between you and the text. Like, what is in it? What is in Torah? Becomes a question to really ask in a way, when we think of Torah, what do we mean? When we regard Torah, what is it that we are regarding? When we relate to Torah, when we study Torah, what are our intentions? What do we expect and what can we hope for? Because in a, the question in a way is what is inside of it? Right? What is the content of this object? Yeah, Susie? Isn't Torah sort of like, it's like the universe, but in written form, like it's all encompassing. It's everything and everyone and no, no, that's sort of how I think of it that it's supposed mm -hmm. to be representative of like the whole universe we're gonna you're 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 intuiting a very 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 neat teaching that we're gonna see soon that there is a, a relationship between the text of the Torah and the world in which one is kind of commenting on the other or vice versa so we're definitely going to get to that. Um, when ben, I find the Ben Bogbog's kind of persistent comments, you know, look into it, i.e. stick with it, go deep into it, grow old with it. You know, thinking back on the past two classes, it is a council of sustainability, of persistence, right? That the relationship with Torah is a long-term relationship. You grow old with Torah. Right? You sit on the porch with Torah and watch the sunset together. You watch your kids grow old. Right? You uh, dandle your grandchildren. Mina lotazua. You don't depart from it. 
And we're going to see with the next teaching why especially that is an important thing to share or to insist on or to encourage us about. Not just because there's nothing greater than it, but also because it might not always be easy. It might be painful. It might be challenging. Right? That this is a relationship, like any worthwhile relationship, that has ups and downs, that has easy times and difficult times. And not just easy and difficult as in good and bad, but rather meaningful times come with difficulty often. Right? The most meaningful experiences of your life come from non-simple, complex, uh, even challenging uh, events. So let's continue to the next teaching from Ben Hehe. And when I said they might be the same guy, the reason is because Bog Bog is Bet Gimel, Bet Gimel. And what is Bet Gimel in Gematria? Bet is? It's two and three, so it's five. Good. And Hey is? Hey is five. Good. So Ben Hey Hey might actually be the same guy as Ben Bog Bog. Yeah, that's a theory. But he would be ten. He's five and five. Yeah. So it's Ben Five Five and Ben Five Five. Um, again, like maybe. Who knows? Uh, they only show up here. They don't show up anywhere else in rabbinic literature. So it's not like they ever talk to each other. So they could be cognomens. Uh, so names haven't continued. No one's calling their kids Bog or Hey. I mean, one of these days, you know. Okay. <laughs> um, you're, yeah, well, I mean, you can call your grand, you know, I guess if you name your kids Hey Hey, and then their grandkid could be named Ben Hey Hey, and then you just, uh, then what more fun would you have then? All right, so here comes this, okay, so even though Ben Hey Hey doesn't appear again, or Ben Bogwood doesn't appear again, we st this teaching shows up all the time. This becomes one of this, like, real, just, like, you should know this phrase. So, you know, like, you know, we tend to focus on the meaning of the text and we're not like drilling people on the language, but, you know, I do try to make sure we're doing a lot of it in the original. But that being said, this is a three-word saying that it's really worth having, you know, as we're building our familiarity with rabbinic literature, right, with Torah. Um, it's good to, you know, you're learning this stuff. You're a student of Torah. You're building your lexicon. You're building your <clears throat> otsar, right, your treasure trove your storehouse of resources. You have a right to this material. So, know this three-word phrase because it shows up all the time in Jewish, you know, discourse. Lefum Tsara Agra. Again, more Aramaic. I will not apologize. Lefum is Lefi. Tsara is Hatsar. And Agra is Haschar. According to the Tsar, Tsuris, is the Schar, is the reward. Okay, according to the tsuris is the reward. What do you take that to mean? The harder you work at it, the greater the reward. Okay, that reward correlates to our efforts. Yeah, you'll okay. understand it better. It'll mean more to you. Great, okay, okay, because the harder you work at it, the more actually you will apply yourself. And then the res uh, what you can achieve through that application is greater because you'll be spending more time and, and, and more intensely. Great. How else? Um, I think maybe it depends. Your reward depends on the type of labor. Mm -hmm. Say more. Is that good? Is that um, Pardon me? 
I'm, I'm now I'm just being very yeshivish. As I said, good. As I said, good. Now say better. I.e., just like expand on that. Um. Well, I mean, it's your choice of what the labor is, depending on what the reward is. So, um, like if your labor is helping people every day, <laughs> then your reward will be greater. Mm. Even though you might, even though you might not work as hard as somebody who works, you know, who works on their feet all day, you know, like right, doing like menial labor. Right. So yeah, I mean, I I I I am importing the English translation from Safaria, although I did actually erase some of them and write my own because I didn't find them sufficient. But this one I kept it. It says according to labor, but here I think labor. Think of like birth. Right, it's laboriousness is what it means. It's not labor, because tsara doesn't mean labor. Tsara means pain, difficulty, tsuris. Um, so it seems like there is some kind of correlation. Now, when you're saying the quality of the labor indicates the quality of the reward, that the two are tied to each other, I think that's true. And I think Ben Hehe is also getting at the fact that you know nothing good comes easy. I.e., if it did come easy, it's cheap. All right, but rather things that, you know, the require a course of study that takes five years, right? The result of that is that you attain a certain kind of mastery way more than just like a one and done, you know, one year masters or something like that, right? Like that you have, um, and not just that, but also I think what we're going to get at is that for something to yield its full potential result, it requires a certain kind of resilience because you're going to have peak moments, but you're going to have low moments. And thus, Ben Bogbog, and that's why I'm thinking, they, not just like Gematria-wise, they're the same person, but these two teachings come together. You can't have the fruit without the exertative labor of farming. You can't have um, a relationship with Torah without also being told don't desist from it. Don't leave. You know, to, to depart from it. Because, because the difficulty of it is actually not, it's not the opposite of, of um, it's not keeping you from what's, what success looks like or what advancement looks like, but rather it's actually the stuff of what advancement looks like. Don't shrink away from it because it's hard. Rather, the fact that it's hard means that something's working. Now, I'm not, you know, like, I think some people take this as license then to be a pain or mean or cruel or, you know, hard driving. And I don't think Ben Hehe or Ben Bogbog or the Ben Hehe, Ben Bogbog industrial complex are, are giving us that license. But rather, I think it's descriptive. It's a very realistic advice in terms of what the world is like. Not just the world, but like in terms of how world functions. What it means to be alive, right? That to expect goodness to come with cheap thrills cheapens goodness. Worthwhile things are hard, often. So let's go back to uh, turning it over and turning over, which will occupy, I think, the majority of our, of our study, but let's go back to the, uh, to the Meforshim, to the commentators. Rambam, uh, with whom we should be familiar by now, um, says, 
Um, it says, Susie said, uh, there we go. Nah. The chat bar. I can't see it because it's covered by the thing. Okay. Um, Sorry, I'll, I'll Susie, just yeah. I just don't, I just not sure, like, maybe it's just the translation or the words, but like, to me, it feels like you're talking about like resilience and endurance and dedication, uh -huh. but uh -huh. they're talking about pain and difficulty and maybe suffering. Like, like, I don't think those are the same thing. Uh -huh. like, yeah, I don't think it to mm. have a pain. I mean, yeah, I see what they're saying that like, mm. you know, you remember like the difficult, the things that you had to come to difficultly better, but but just because you they're like I feel like they're trying to say you gotta stick with it, not you I think that's Ben Bog Bog, but I think Ben Hey Hey is getting a little bit farther, like in the sense of like I mean one side is just like as you know, like no pain, no gain kind of thing. But I think I think there's a difference between like suffering and pain. And I, I don't think Torah is endorsing suffering per se. But um, resilience, right, is developing a tolerance for pain, right, for what is challenging, for what is not tolerable at the moment, right? It is expanding your capacity for tolerance. Um, and in that way, like, I think uh, we're going to get to that later, because I think we're also going to talk about, like, I think what what kind of pathways for what it means to relate to Torah that this opens up for us. So I want you to, I want, I, I think your pushback is, is quite well noted. Susie, I want you to like put that on the back burner. We're going to get back to it because first we're going to like kind of go through the romance of like the Torah study lifestyle and the infinity of it and the mystical nature of it. And then we're going to get to like, what does it mean though to really have that fantasy and then to realize like that reality and fantasy don't always match up. All right, like I'm, I'm not, I'm never gonna come here in this class and be like, and you know, like I believe strongly in Torah, I believe fully in, you know, in the Masorah of Moshe Rabbeinu, and, uh, but I that belief has come, you know, is not like a one that does cannot include, I think, complexity, and one that cannot include, I think, um, the different ways people relate to it. Um, it's really important that that belief has come to through resilience, not through, um, not through, I think, fantasy. So I think I think we're gonna kind of go through that journey together in this class. Um, so Amru al Torah sheyafuch b'vi'ageba mipnesha kolba. So the Rambam says that they say about the he might actually have a different edition of the Mishnah, and we're gonna see that maybe Abu Lafia had a different edition too. It's interesting. So it says they say about the Torah that one should turn it over, turn it over, and one should um, contemplate it because all is in it. V'amar uva and he focuses on and peer within it, and that might you know make sense because he is a philosopher and he's thinking about inquiry. He says, "Ratzon Lamar, ha-emes, pireish, v'sira ha-emes, ba'ayna seichel, ba'ayna seichel, kitargum v'yar v'chaza." So when it says peer in it, he means find the truth, i.e., look within and. Uh, identify the truth, um, perceive the truth with your mind's eye, or with the eye of your intellect, but with your mind's, uh, i.e., using your mind, right? Um, as it is interpret, as it is Aramaic translation, vayira v'chaza, right? He saw is translated as v'chaza. I think here he's just making sure we know v'techzeba is Aramaic. Acharkach amar v'sivu v'leba, 
Afterwards, it says, and grow old and gray with it. Klomar, hit asekba ad et hazikna, gam azlo tasur mimena lizulata. That is to say, one should engage with it and stick with it until one's old age. And don't um, shy away from it to, to commit yourself to something else. The, you know, this is not, I would say, you know, giving us more than just elucidating the teaching. But here I think we have an important point that hit asigba ad zikna is not something that happens by accident. Engaging with it, sticking with it, committing to it until your old age implies that this is a lifelong relationship. Learning Torah is not just going to Monday night Pirkei Avos class, but it is developing your a, a steady, consistent relationship with Torah. That and here's the empowering element that it really, in a way, is directed by not directed by you because it's important to have teachers and important to have guides and things like that. But rather, it's your journey. It's your old age you come to. It's your life with Torah that you're crafting. Right? Torah is your accompanier. You're on a road trip with Torah through the rest of your life. But it, that, for that to be true requires that consistence that, you know, that, um, and that persistence right? to stick with it. Um, comes the Midrash Shmuel, which we, we've uh, looked at before, which is a very really neat anthology. I'm, I'm coming to really uh, love it as I've been preparing these classes uh, because it is, it's so, um, I'll say flamboyant. It's, it's just, it's, it's readings are just so um, passionate and I really love it. Um, so let's look at this moving forward. It says, One can further interpret. Turn it over, turn it over. Below Yamushu mipicha dekulaba, and don't let it depart from your mouth. He's citing another verse because all is within it. That is to say, liot ochel haolamazeh v'nochel haolam hava. Eat in this world, but inherit the next world. Hakol yusagva ki orech yamim bimina. Um, all can be attained through it. For the length of, of your days is in God's right hand. In the left hand, God has um, wealth and happiness and dignity. Um, which is all to say that through Torah, one is able to both gain access to a way to navigate this world and also you know, go through the, you know, the, the, the portal into, and into the next world as well. Because the orech yamim, right, the length of your days, implies it's not just not just practical advice about this world, doing mitzvahs in this world, but also that it bears fruit in the world to come. But here's where the real, uh, here's where the thrust of his comment comes. Inami hafochba. So if that's the case, hafochba, turn it over. The achar oto apam havana havana achat. And after you've come to one understanding about Torah, return to it and turn it over again. So this was, I think, getting at what I was uh, hearing Ellen implying, that it is, in a way, wrong to believe that Torah is about knowledge. It's not about coming to an answer, but rather it's about the practice of reading. 
right? It's not about the result of having read it, figuring it out, but rather it is about what seems to perhaps be a never-ending re-engagement with what Torah can mean. And after you've come to one understanding, return to it and turn it over again. And you'll understand another, a new understanding. Even deeper than the first. And, and so, in every single time you do that, it just gets deeper and deeper. You get deeper and deeper into it. From the beginning of scripture, i.e. from the pshat, to the end of what one can hermeneuticize from it, right? From what one can draw out of it through reading, through interpretation. From beginning to end and from end to beginning. Turn it over, turn it over, turn it over. Ula olam, forever, tavin bo You will always understand, come to understand, a new, novel, and even I would say innovative reading of Torah. Lefi de kulaba, because all is within it. I mean, think about that, right? Like infinity. If all is within it, it's inexhaustible. So in a way, like stick with it till you're old is 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 kind of common sense because there's no end to this. And its words suffer many interpretations. Now the word suffer is very interesting because it's used metaphorically. But I think again, the 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 the, the note of resilience there is quite real. Like that, that we're talking about in terms of bearing with something, right? That Torah suffers. Well, you know, do not suffer a witch to live. It's that kind of use of suffer, right? Do not. Um, the Torah bears many manifold interpretations, and because as the uh, as the Talmud says, Torah has seventy faces slash facets. Okay. So what do we take? What are we taking from this uh, from this perush, from the first midrash Shmuel? What kind of relation to the Torah is the midrash Shmuel encouraging or describing? It's your constant companion. Mm -hmm. And it's giving you, you know, Torah's been compared to water, right? It, it quenches your thirst. It's, it's a constant source of new understanding and engaging your mind, engaging you spiritually. Um, there, I, actually, I learned a very interesting thing this morning on a year I'm taking, and it's uh, the teachings of the Piazzetner Rebbe. Uh, he, the Piazzetner. Yeah, Piazzetner, who was like, an amazing, amazing person. But he was talking about how, well, he it started with like he saying Baruch Atah Hashem. Uh, the Atah is like kind of almost chutzpah How could it be Atah? You wouldn't say that to a king or queen. Um, but, you know, so it means that really you're working on a personal relationship with Hashem and Torah is Hashem speaking to you and you speaking to Hashem's prayer. 
but but what she, she emphasized the teacher this morning was he taught that within everybody there's like a secret and it's like a secret spark and that's when you like she described it as when you suddenly you're reading something in Torah and you have like a new understanding of it right a fidush and it's so personal to you that you really feel it and you maybe couldn't even explain it to another person because it's so deep with thought inside you. I thought that was like an amazing teaching, but I think it feeds into this too. The Torah is like, mom is really a part of you. It's not only something you carry and you learn with other people on your own, but it's something that's like, if you really work at it, it can be deep, deep within you and give you new insights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. Um, the... Uh, so that just for some uh, historical context, the Piazetsner Rebbe was the Rebbe of uh, Piazetsner, which was the uh, suburb of Warsaw, and eventually, you know, tragically, he, was, he became the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto. And his, uh, his teachings are an incredible testimony to uh, spiritual resilience to find meaning within troubled, immensely troubled time. Um, the Yechiel Michal of Zlotchev, who was an early Hasidic master, you know, took these esoteric, these technical terms from Kabbalah. He said, Nister, Nigla and Nister. Right. Nigla means like exoteric readings of Torah, you know, like the pshat, the halacha, the normal stuff. And esoteric readings, the hidden stuff, right? That's what we think of being Kabbalah. But for him, he said, no, no, no. Nigla are exterior readings, i.e. ones that can be explained to someone else. You can justify them. You can recourse to grammar, to syntax, to historical context, to the, you know, the discourse of law, whatever it is. But Nister, esoteric, secret readings of Torah, he says it's like biting into an apple. You can't communicate the taste to anyone else. There's something radically individual and singular about everyone's life. That we can try to describe it, communicate ourselves to others, but no one will ever have the same experience. That's the challenge of poetry, right? To put into words what is beyond. Life is poetry in that way. Torah is poetry in that way. And I, what I find in the Midrash Shmuel, so I, on one side, right, we have Lawrence invo uh, you know, bringing the teaching of Peter Zetzner that there is something in us, right, that is unique, that is special, that no one else can uh, recapitulate. You know, actually, the Piazetsner says, actually, that just like there are 600,000 souls in the people of Israel, kind of like, uh, symbolically speaking, so, and there are 600,000 letters of the Torah, so just like one, if one letter is gone in the Torah, the Torah is puzzled, the Torah is invalid, so if one person's Torah is missing, if one person's relation to the Torah is missing, then it's, it's also, it's gone. Right, it's, it's invalid. Everyone's Torah is necessary because we all compose what the Torah is made of. And I think that's to be found here, right? The sense that Torah is not just what's a, a book. It's not the words in, you know, covers of a book. But rather, Torah is found in the engagement between you and the text. And what's born from that engagement. Right? Dekulaba, all is in it, means... Not just that it is immense and vast and infinite, but rather also, so is the potential for your own meaning-making with it and through it. 
there is no end to you coming to meaningful understandings of Torah because it is infinite because your engagement with it is infinitely generative there's nothing less Jewish than thinking that there is a right answer to Torah <laughs> right like Hellenistic Greek thinking is about finding the singular truth right cutting away all the falsehoods and coming to you know through reason coming to single truth but Jewish thinking, Torah thinking, rabbinic thinking is about what truths can be produced, generated through authentic engagement. There's no end to truths. So let's go further. And appropriately, he, he continues to say, we have sure owed, and one can further say, right? There's no end to this. Shamar turn over, turn over, Lafitte. Shematsinu beoto hashalim shahaya doresh memtes panim tamayu memtes panim tahor. Said we have found a, a story. He's adapting a story about God giving um, instruction to Moses, providing forty-nine interpretations of impurity and forty-nine interpretations of purity. This becomes like kind of a code phrase for the what's called the indeterminacy of law. I think, you know, uh, what's going on in the news right now with the American Constitution and the Supreme Court, it's become very clear in a way, right, that these law texts are not just there, but they are constructed through the ways that they are read. Right? Oh, this right is found in this central text, the Constitution. No, this right isn't found in that central text. How do you know? Because you have to make your case by crafting a reading of it. Right? Law is found through interpretation. It's constructed through interpretation. So, comes the complete one, i.e. Moshe Rabbeinu, who doresh, who darshans out, who exegetes, right, when exegesis is textual interpretation, who exegetes 49 readings in which someone brings a case to him of something being, whether it's pure or impure. 49 reasons to say it's pure, 49 ways to say it's not pure. And he says, this is instructive. He says, Even if, the, if these readings you come to, after turning it over and turning it over, going back to it and turning it over, are the opposite of each other. If they're the opposite of each other, let's call it normal Western thinking, right, would say something's, there's a bug. Only one of those can be correct. Or it's incoherent. Right? This, ex this is what is the law of the excluded middle, right, in classical logic. Right? You can't have something X and not X at the same time. The law of excluded middle is if there's X and not X, then there's nothing else, there's nothing else it could be. Well, I mean, if something is X or not X, right, what are the other options? Right, it's, it, you know, that's, it's totalizing, right? It's yes or no, black or white. It's Y? Hmm? If it's X or not X, can it be Y or Z? That's or not Z? X. Okay. Right? <laughs> Listen, I'm, I, I, this, is, this is just like symbolic logic, right? Like <laughs> if something's X or not X, you have two options and there's nothing else that it could be. Right? So here what we have is Moses, Moses saying, you have 49 reasons to say something's pure. 49 ways you're reading the Torah to say it's impure. And even if you see that, like, these are literally contradicting each other. 
And even if it seems at first glance that the first way you thought of it is actually the right one, and maybe you're like tricking yourself by like making this too complicated. Lachin Amor, Hashalim Azet, Amor Hashalim Azet, the holy complete one, Moshe Rabbeinu said, Al Tishgeh Bani Besvarazura, Kazos. Don't get seduced by this idolatrous thinking. And I wonder if maybe he's like gesturing to like Greek philosophy. But regardless, don't get seduced by this reductive thinking. Rock. Rather, right? Don't get tricked into believing that all there are are oppositions and that they must exclude each other. Rather, turn it over, turn it over, keep on darshaning it, darshan out. Literally, if you're, if you're figuring out opposing readings, inverted readings, opposite readings, you're doing something right, is what he's saying. Think about that. Right? Ways to read it in which it's pure. Ways to read it in which it's not pure. Dekulaba! I mean, this is actually quite, this is, uh, this is dialectical thinking, right? Like, Mitterschmuel anticipated Hegel. It's incredible, right? Um, X and not X are related to each other, right? Because you can't have not X without X. And you can't have X without the potential for not X. Thus, there is a middle, as it were, in the sense that they are related to each other. They rely on each other. That's dialectical thinking. So, I mean, think about what they're saying about, like, here's a tech, here's, here's a central, you know, it's the Torah. But it is quite consistent philo philosophically with if you're saying kula ba, if you're saying everything is in it, then it requires there to be opposites in it. Otherwise, it's not everything. This is where, like, Midrash is really just, like, on the road to Kabbalah. Um, but, I mean, it's an incredibly, I want to call it a mature approach to law. And not just to law, but to, to how contingent text is. That text is, we come to understand text through interpreting it. It doesn't just provide itself to us. We read it. And thus, Torah means something. It's dependent on our efforts. And it's dependent on our commitments. And in this way, Moses is even saying, it's dependent on your ability to not get too precious. To not put your thinking first, but rather to really exhaust every single possibility you can come to. Torah is bigger than you, and it's bigger than even this question. Everything is possible through Torah. You know, one side of that might be nihilistic in a way. Well, if everything's possible through Torah, then nothing's possible through Torah. That's not quite right. Rather, Torah is infinitely possible. And then the question of how you act, what you draw, what is wise to derive from it, Right? That's the next necessary question. Turn it over, turn it over, darshan it out, such that it, re it results in opposing readings, 
some saying yes, some saying no. Since everything is in it, ve'elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim, these and those are the words of the living God. Yes and no at the same time. This is quantum Torah, right? It's indeterminate. It determines itself, or it becomes determined, through our engagement with it. So here, the Midrash Shmuel is citing this Midrash as a way of providing, I think, both the, the challenge and the promise and the, and the fantasy, right, of... Of, of what it means to, I mean, it's like Torah study as the mystical contemplation of infinity. I don't, you know, I, this isn't like giving us, I guess, permission just to like see whatever you want. There's a big difference between eisegesis and exegesis. Eisegesis means reading into the Torah. Exegesis means reading out of the Torah. An engagement with something means you bring yourself to it, but it's different than shoving yourself into it. Eisegesis means to read into it, right? To project into it. Exegesis means to derive from it through applying certain strategies of reading. There's a famous 13 strategies of hermeneutics that Rabbi Ishmael lists at the end of uh, the Corbano section in the Siddur. Um, so there's like, I would say there's authentic engagements and there's like Machiavellian engagements, right? There's ways to get the Torah to like contort itself such that it says what you want it to say. But that's, right, that's just turning the Torah into a tool to serve your ends. Whereas this is actually, it flips that dynamic. You, in a way, become a tool to suit the Torah. You are becoming the way in which Torah manifests, Torah actualizes through your engagement with it. And it's only through you that, as we saw in the first interpretation of the Midrash Shmuel, that these new interpretations can come to be. Um, question. Yes. So, um, couldn't, it, couldn't it be possible then that there are infinite possibilities, interpretations, but the human element has to bring some sort of consensus, like you were saying about the law. Mm -hmm. um, like, I can't think of an example right now, but like, um, but like keeping keeping Shabbat, like that's like generally, you know, pretty. I don't know if that's a good example either. Like how you interpret how to keep Shabbat can be a very different thing for everybody. So Right. Like, well that's the thing, like it's not, he's not saying Midrash Shmuel isn't saying like Torah says keep Shabbos and it says don't keep Shabbos. Torah says eat kosher and it's also saying eat trafe. But I think rather that you know within there's the been a consensus, but there's been a consensus, you know. Well, let's say in certain groups. So, like this group says, "Well, keeping Shabbat looks like this," and this group says, "Keeping Shabbat looks like this." And then, like somebody might say, "Well, you know, I keep Shabbat like this." Like it's different. So, like there has to be like some sort of consensus. 
to make I mean, it real, doesn't there? Kind of. I don't know. I mean, in the sense that, again, it's not saying, like, listen, there, there are the 613 mitzvot, right? But then the question is, how do these mitzvot actualize? Yeah, so right? Someone brings the chicken to the rabbi. Is the chicken kosher or is the chicken treif? Right? And the real posake knows that it, in a way, has more to do with the situation than it does with the book. Right? There's a lot of room in halacha to factor in all these different kinds of things. So the fact that, like, there's no such thing as the right answer because it is complex, and I would say, I would use the word emergent. It's possible that it can go one way, and it's possible it can go the other way. The question is, in a way, what's the wise course of action? Because truth, in a way, is not determinative, but generative, right? Truth doesn't compel us to say, well, you know, suck it up, but the chicken's trafe. But rather, to find an authentic way to say the chicken is kosher, if that is the right thing to do. Right, you know, the classic examples is like, you know, if the, if the person bringing the chicken is poor and they don't have access to other food, they just have this one chicken, they shechted the chicken, found out that there's, you know, it's ambiguous whether it's kosher or it's treif. There's ground, if there's ground to stand on to say that it can be seen as kosher, it's kosher. But you have to have a rabbi who's able to see the world that way and see the engagement with Torah that way. It's not wrong. It's contingent. Right? Like, it's made true. Because it, it both because all is possible. Torah has given us all possibilities. The question is when and where and how and why is it right to actualize those possibilities? You know, there's some like obvious questions you know it would be inauthentic to say well you know it really it's all up to interpretation isn't it really but rather that torah emerges through engagement just as life emerges right events in our lives present themselves to us we can't control that we don't you know we're not living our lives top down life is lived from the inside out and so in a way is torah It's It's not just like a, a, a living tree. It's a tree of living. It lives with us. I don't want to do the next one outside. I just want inside rather. I just want to kind of gesture to it and say that the last thing Midrashimul gets at is saying like, and here's how you do it. What you do is you actually intentionally problematize the Torah. The the and and this is what I mean when I say resilience is, is necessary in terms of what it means to have this engagement and this relationship with Torah. You have to actually come to a reading and then on purpose convince yourself it's wrong. You need to pick apart every answer you come to. Because then only then can when you when you are able to then do the second time you turn it over again, then you know exactly the weaknesses that you came to in the first place. I tried to teach this actually when I was in the university. I tried to teach this to my students when I was trying to teach uh, essay writing. I say, it's the strongest essay uh, argument you can make in which you can anticipate its faults, its flaws, and its limits. There's no such thing as a perfect argument. To present an argument as unassailable means only that you haven't thought it through enough and that you don't respect the reader 
and how the reader can read your text, your citation, and your argument differently. Resilience is what's required to be able to take apart your own theory. That's what I mean about not being too precious. It is about actually developing a commitment to something beyond your success, but rather towards the advancement of Torah. It's not about you coming up with a hot new idea, but rather it is about a constant and consistent engagement, critical engagement, with the way to uh, relate to Torah's potential meaning. It's not about your answer, but rather it's about how your readings can serve the project of Torah. So here comes uh, the mystical reading that Susie in her own mystical glory had intuited. This is from Reb Tzadok Okoyen of Lublin, uh, late 19th, early 20th century uh, Hasidic rabbi in central Poland, in Lublin. He's in the kind of the, the spiritual genealogy, the intellectual genealogy of the Sfas Emes, and always oh, a kind of a, a confederate of the, of the Sfas Emes, and, um, but in the line of the Kutzker, um, you know, uh, uh, the uh, holy Jew of, of uh, where's the Yiddakayah from? And the Chayzeh of Lublin. Um, and Simcha Bun Um All of these very, in a way, like kind of a radical strain of Hasidism that wanted to get away from, I think, the more like let's say, mass element of Hasidism, like to follow the leader and, and kind of try to re-ground it in the uh, engagements of the individual thing, uh, seeker. So here comes Reb Tzadok Akkoyin saying, he's actually drawing, I, you know, ironically, actually, uh, there's, some con there's some confluence between him and the Gra, the Vilna Gaon, who's the famed enemy of Hasidism. They actually have some similar, similar imagery they use. But he says, Ha'olam kulo hu sefer. What does that mean? Don't look at the English. We can figure it out ourselves. Ha'olam kulo. All right. The whole world. Who's safer? It's a book. That Hashem um, blessed us. That Hashem is made. Right. Yisparach is just like it's part of Hashem. You can just get. You don't have to translate. Yisparach. I'm getting some feedback. I'm going to meet you. Sorry, Lord. Uh, Torah hu feirush. Right? And the Torah is the commentary on the book of the world. Right? Torah is the Rashi on the Torah of the world. Shasav chiber al oto sefer, which God has composed on this book. Ha'olam hu rak roshem beheker ba'alma. The world is merely an inscription, a mnemonic. Ba'ayedei ha'Torah yecholim lahavina remizos shalareishem beheker. And it's through the Torah that one can come to understand the signification, right, the hints of this inscription. Sheyesh b'ma'asim 
which is found in the events, i.e. of the world. Regarding what is in the mind of God. So what's the Torah? <laughs> We get the metaphor that he's, I mean, it's, it's very, it's very uh, out there. Yeah, because that means the Torah isn't even the book. The Torah is just the accompaniment to the book. Yeah, but, you know, but Rashi's amazing, right? Like, we don't, you know, that's the thing, like, Torah doesn't end, right? The notion that a perush is less than Torah I mean, yes, listen, you know, like, if I'm going to stack books, the Chumash goes on top, and then under it, the Rashi, fine. But, more is more, right? There's not one answer. Torah is generative. It keeps on going. We're in a textual system. The world is a text. But, like we were saying above, texts only have meaning when they are read. So what's the Torah then? The Torah is the key to help the incoherence, in a way, of the world, right? Find some semblance of meaning. The Torah, it's like putting, it's like, you ever see the movie They Live? Rowdy Roddy Piper, I think, is the good, he puts on the glasses and like, you know, and he sees that, you know, these, like, seemingly normal, everyday folks are actually, like, zombie aliens, oh no. And, like, and he puts on the glasses, and he sees that these billboards are actually this hypnotic, subliminal messages. So when we say that the Torah is the commentary to the world, it's not frippery or, like, extraneous, but rather it is the way in which the world is able, it helps us come to understand and find meaning in the world. That the world is written in like gnomic script, right? A script that, we, that is opaque to us. We can't read it or understand it. Only through this legend, right? Like in like the back of a highlights magazine, right? This key can we unpack and interpret, solve for, right? The, you know, the Rubik, Rubik? What's it called? The, like, no, well, no, that's a that's a river. No, the um, what's the thing of the the pictures and the words? Rubik? No. Sure. What? I have no idea what you're talking about. I forget. You know, it's the thing where it's like the pictures. Re Rebus. A Rebus. Or... Yeah, Rebus. Okay. Yeah. Anywho, point is, it's a code, right? The Torah is. I'm sorry. The world is a book that we can't read. Torah, right, is the commentary that helps us understand what the world is saying. It helps us piece together what its events mean. You know, you can take that in kind of like a Nostradamus kind of way, a Bible code kind of way, but I don't think that's what he means really. But rather, Torah provides for us a framework of meaning that helps the world come to some kind of sense of coherence. Because it is God's it is an, you know, it is a rubric to God's mind. So, Mikomakom, Gam Kol Maasev Nivraya Olam Kulam He Sefer Shalem. Okay, so on one hand he says, okay, 
kind of like in the kind of the you know Renee had intuited in this like the, there's the book of the world and then there's the mere you know the commentary of the Torah seems like it kind of demotes the Torah in a sense but he says actually every single event and every single creature in this world every single one of them is actually a complete book unto itself in which are inscribed all of the letters of God's consciousness through or by means of great concealment, i.e. it is a secret inscription. There's nothing that exists, there's nothing that's been created that's not in some way an inscription of God's consciousness. And a unique disclosure of God's mind. Every single thing that exists in some way is a revelation unto itself. It's a mini-revelation. Every single thing that exists is its own Torah. But it's a Torah that is closed to us until we engage in Torah. Dilotohu bira'ah. Nothing was created chaotically, sense, senselessly, willy-nilly. Everything was created with the purpose and the intention, a unique purpose. Everything is unique, special, irreplaceable. Every single thing, every iota of existence in this world is its own book its own unique disclosure that reveals to us God's praise, God's dignity, God's glory. So Torah is, you know, is, is a meta-text for the text of the world. Torah is literally a text. It's books, right? It's a book with words in it. But the world is also text i.e. it means something, but can only come to mean something through our engagement in Torah. So we go back then to hafochba vafochba dekulaba. Right? Because we, that's not mentioned here. But if you think about it, right? Just as we engage in Torah, and turn it over and turn it over. Find a reading that's coherent and then problematize it, pick it apart, invert it, turn it into its opposite, and then turn that into its opposite, and then keep on going, keep on going. A kind of persistent, virtuosic attention that we lavish on Torah. But the world is a book, too, that needs to be related to with that kind of lavish attention. To attend to each and every creature as its own text that can be infinitely understood and infinitely engaged with and infinite and produce infinite meaning. Each and every creature and each and every created thing is Torah that can be turned over and turned over and found new things and special things and unique things in it because each thing is a unique disclosure of God's mind. So we see now that the text of Torah and the text of the world start to develop a symbiotic relationship.
or rather that symbiotic relationship becomes clearer to us. We can't understand the world without Torah, but I would say lehefech, right, vice versa, we can't understand Torah without the world. Because how do we understand, well actually we're going to get to this um, below. Okay, because uh, I was just going to ask, well then, how did, how did Abraham understand the Torah because he didn't have the Torah? That is a that huge question. Was... <laughs> kind of complicated to get into. Um, but I thought it. But I thought it was because uh, he had this ability to, like, if we're using the book analogy, he right. had the ability to read the world, and so that's how he learned Torah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's actually that's a very elegant way of putting it. Right. That like for Abraham coming to certain principles, right, was done through that kind of intuitive infer inference, right, by, you know, relating to creation, right, like a kind of, like, natural Torah of sorts, right, or he was able to attain, like, spiritual, the spiritual Torah, right, but before it became codified into, you know, into law as we have it. Um... I think, Susie, let's let's check in after. Um, okay. So, so what I mean to say is like, just like we need, so Reb Sadiq Kain of Lublin is saying, just like we need, sorry, we need Torah to read the text of the world because it provides a lens or a framework that helps the world come to coherence. But also, we require the world to come to Torah because the world itself then, each and every part of it, you know, unto its very infinitesimal um, iota, right, is itself a complete world. And, um, which then I think inculcates in us, it trains us, it habituates us in terms of what it means to have that kind of persistent uh, attentive relationship. Um, but we're going to get back to that kind of that, that symbiosis uh, later on. Um, um, so I think I will also do this outside. We're not going to do it word for word, but Benny Shchai, who was a early 20th century chief rabbi in Iraq, a very, very important uh, modern halachic thinker, um, it cites this in a completely surprising way, or perhaps maybe surprising to me, at least, in that he says, when it says afokba, afokba, it actually doesn't mean reading Torah as text, you know, hermeneutically engage with it, exegetically engage with it, turn it over, turn it over, pick it apart, put it together, da-da-da. But rather, it actually has to do with what it means to apply Torah in the world, to live Torah and not just that, but also, and here's something very powerful, that the nature of Torah is not just opposition, but transformation. Because lahafoch doesn't just mean to invert or to oppose, to turn it over. Lahafoch also means to transform, for something to become something else. And he says that the practice, right, the main feature of what it means to be engaging, I think he uses a Kabbalistic uh, practice in specific, namely to identify and to derive holy sparks of God's being that are within the material world, 
and to refine them. And he says that there's two transformations. One is to transform, to, to find the holy spark from, you know, coarse matter and help it come to a more refined material state, i.e. when you're eating, not just to see it as fueling your body, but rather also as a way to, um, to in a more emotional, a more spiritual way, to be relating to matter itself, right, as a, to, let's say, a portal to something higher, and then to take the more refined relationship to matter and then transform that into spirituality. We don't want to get into the technicalities of it, but the point here, though, is that hafokhla, hafokhla, is about transformation, transforming the world through your engagement with it. So just as we are relating to the world as text through the lens of Torah, it's not just understanding it, but actually in that way, helping it come into itself and advance. And not just that, but I would say also what you can find in this, you know, application of this idea is that you too are transformed in that process as well. To engage with something or someone in a true dialogue doesn't just change the object of your attention, but you are the object of their attention too. You become transformed in that engagement. The process, the practice of Torah is process, and the process of Torah is transformation. Um, here's a very terse but immensely beautiful teaching that we find in Sefer Otsar Eden Haganuz, a treasure trove of the hidden Eden, which is a um, a mystical text of Abraham Abu Afi, a 13th century Kabbalist. Now, it might be the case he actually just has a different edition of the Mishnah, because I've found, like, another text that cites the same version of this teaching, or it's a gloss on it, because I've seen it written as a gloss before. A gloss is, like, not a full interpretation, but a way of kind of a riff on it. He says this, Do not forget, but rather, ha turn it over and turn it over, dekulach since all of you is in it, and all of it is in you. That's getting at, I think, the necessary realization that this relationship is not just about subject and object. I read the text to make it mean something. I find meaning in the passive text. The dead letter, I, in, I, I infuse them with living spirit. But rather, it is, a, it is a symbiotic, dialogic relationship between two living creatures. Because it's not just it that, is, that you are reading, but rather, you are in it. And it is in you. To go back to what we were saying before about authentic engagement. You are required for Torah to mean something, and, to and Torah is required for you to mean something, to come to meaning. You, Torah cannot become meaningful without you, i.e. your experiences, your unique perspective, your creativity, your, 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 your uh, crystal clear reasoning, your daring imagination, your bleeding heart, Whatever it is, whatever it is in you, helps Torah come to itself, facilitates Torah's actualization, and vice versa. 
that it is in you as well. You are formed by it just as much as you form it. It makes you, too. You come to yourself through coming to it, and it comes to itself through coming to you. Um, I want to conclude with this teaching from the Nesivas Olam, which is a, a book about values and about character by the Maharal, Rabbi Yehuda Lo of Prague, um, famous bo bo bohemian rabbi uh, living in the 16th century who was also a mystic, um, but in his writings he kind of kept it a little bit more subtle. And he wasn't as, let's say, um, flamboyant in his Kabbalah. But you see his kind of a, a persistent mystical strain in his writing. Um, so the Maharal says this, and this, I, and, we're gonna, and this is, I think, an immensely, I think, empowering point that can only be come to through the synthesis of Ben Bagwag and Ben Hehe, through the synthesis of turning it over to transform the text through your transformation, to help the text come to itself through your own growth and evolution. And how that, like any process of growth, has pain, growing pains. Um, I just want, you know, before I was saying that, like, I, I hope that through, you know, that the model that's being presented here is a sustained, persistent, resilient relationship with Torah that doesn't preclude or ignore the possibility that it can be one of pain. Whether it's just because, and I've experienced this a zillion times, you're cracking your head on something, you just don't get it, and it's annoying, and you feel dumb, that's real, but also you can encounter something in Torah that's painful. You can come, you can, uh, you can go to a class in which the kind of the, the message is one that, that stings. You can, in your own reading of Torah, encounter something that you find difficult to tolerate or you can't understand or you find offensive. What I think the framework that's being offered here is one of patience and one of, of a lifetime. And also one of potential. That what one encounters at first, just as what we saw before from the Midrash Mool, is not necessary. And even what seems most likely is not what is required. But rather, Torah is bigger than us and bigger than what we could ever imagine. And thus, what it is that we encounter can also then be transformed through our engagement with it. There's political matters, and there's legal matters, and it's a larger conversation, and it's a much more complex one than just to say, well, you know, it's all in your hands. And that's not what I'm saying. But rather that Torah's potential unfolds in our engagement with it. And to reduce Torah to some kind of bottom line is that Svarazara that Moshe 
dismissed. It's that idolatrous thinking in which Torah can only be one thing, reducing Torah to the truth. Torah produces truth through our engagement with it. That's the radical belief. That's the Jewish belief. So the Maharal says this. He says, Should no, the od ma'alat ha-mitzvot, a further um, advantage of the mitzvahs, i.e., what they what what benefit they have. Should notnim la'adam Allah ma'ale madrega al ha'elyonim. That mitzvot, and by what mitzvot, I want to kind of use that as a code as engagement with Torah and actualizing Torah in our lives. Actually sends us further beyond even the angels. Tor, Torah's mitzvahs mean that we actually can reach higher than the angels. Why? It compels the mind to acknowledge this and it obligates the intellect. Key. The angelic creatures all perform their roles. They do what they're programmed to do. Angels are like robots. They do what they're what they're programmed to do according to their nature, to their programming, right? To their genetic code. They're not, like, obligated. They're not coerced into it. They're just an extension of God's will. They just do it. There's no selfhood. There's no subjectivity. There's no freedom. There's no choice. Angels just do. They emerge from the burning river, Dinur, and they return to it when their role is done. That's it. They don't have knees. They can just stand. They can't sit. They can't change their position because they can't change. The Ainlam Tsar. Angels don't feel pain. Kasher Hemosimer Sun Konam. When they do the will of God. Why? Because there's nothing resisting it. It's clear flowing water. Aval Adam. But human beings. Kasher hu kofeh et yitro. When they coerce their inclinations. Right? They subjugate their urge. They address their baser natures, and manage to fulfill God's will with great effort, exertion, challenge, difficulty, pain. What reward is greater than that? As the rabbi said, Ben Hehe, Lefum Sara Agra. According to the pain is the reward. I.e., the fact that life is hard is why it's meaningful. If it came easy, if it came simply, if it came without a sense of resistance, it would mean in a way we weren't here at all. We're the ohm that creates, you know, that the light bulbs right? Resistance is what's required to create light in any kind of electrical circuit. We're opaque. Light doesn't shine through us. Light hits us, bounces off, warms our skin, burns our skin. It's the challenge of what it means to devote yourself 
that is the basis of the meaning and even the reward. Because if it weren't hard, what would be rewarded? And, I think this is really to the point, it is through the application of effort that the self is shown to exist. Right? Because what is it choosing to make that choice? And that choice can only be made when bumping up against what it would do otherwise. If there's something there that would rather do the other thing, then that is the self that is made through this. Not just shown to be, but just as we construct Torah and Torah constructs us, the self is what comes to be through this engagement. We are who we make ourselves to be through the engagement that is a lifelong practice and persistence. So, you know, Pirkei Avos is a book of, uh, of, of practical advice. So what's the practical takeaway here? You know, besides, we went to some very mystical and some very psychological places this evening. So I want us to kind of, I want us to have, to be able to sit with this for a moment and just think, I think, about the perspective that Pirkei Avos, that Ben Bagbag and Ben Hehe are giving us. that a worthwhile and meaningful engagement requires a number of things. One is flexibility, to be able to not just push forward and see one thing, to snappishly decide, but rather to sit and to consider, right, as Rambam was saying, to be able to look into it, peer into it deeply, but also to even challenge ourselves, to challenge the immediate answers we come to to resist the seduction of what seems obvious or even necessary. Because Torah, as a model, I think, teaches us to hold something and to look at every single side of it, to turn it over, even to turn it inside out, to transform it into its opposite, and to find how that is true too. That teaches you to help understand other people's perspectives to develop empathy, to develop humility about the answers that we come to, and that when we do come to an answer at the end of, a, of an arduous process of consideration and interpretation, it's one that we can stand behind, feel confident in, and know why we're coming to it. We develop a greater level of self-consciousness by paying attention not just to what it is we're thinking, but how we're thinking why we're thinking a certain kind of way. The self reveals itself through this engagement. It's not just an answer we come to, but the answer we come to realize is the result of thinking that is done by us. Everything that we think is done by us. And it is the most mature thinker that's able to never forget that and thus to maintain a sense of modesty, I think, in the conclusions we come to, and a sense of contingency. Because it's necessary for us to be able to see not just how we came to the, the answer we decided upon, but also how we could have gone another way, and when we see others going a different way, 
to be able to at least understand how it is that they did this, even if we disagree. Understanding is not the same thing as agreement. Empathy is not the same thing as approval. I think we find ourselves most able to engage with others and most um, prepared and capable of engaging with others if we don't just see them as opposing us, but to realize that our own process is dependent on opposition, dependent on transformation, dependent on inversion, depending on turning something into its opposite to understand it in its fullness. And that then becomes a practice in life. How to be able to develop the tolerance and the resilience we need to be able to encounter something, to come to something and then to take it apart, to encounter something that we have a challenge accepting, but to be able to sit with it, to consider it from all sides, and to even maybe at the end not be able to sit with it in the same kind of way, but to be able to look within it and to find something in it that we can identify, and even maybe identify with. It's a practice of resilience, it's a practice of charity, by which I mean a loving practice of reading, and a way to lovingly engage with Torah, to lovingly engage with the book of the world in the locution of the Ripsaduk, and also to lovingly engage with each other, to see us all as infinite texts, ones that never stop coming to new readings. Um, thanks so much for joining. Um, Susie, I will stick with you after. Um, you want to say something now. Susie, you have the floor. Um, considering sort of like the theme of today's class and what it takes to be able to really live Torah, understand, or work with Torah, why did you include the passage about Torah being like a cipher to the world? Because, I mean, I enjoyed that passage. I have a lot of thoughts about that passage, but it, I'm not quite sure how it fits into everything else we're talking about today. Well, it's the one passage that's not literally about the the Pirkei Avos text, <laughs> but it is about textuality. So I wanted to try to draw a bridge between not just Torah as literal book, and thus, oh yeah, we're just talking about what it means to like open up the Chumash and read that, and then read Rashi and see how Rashi's different than the than the Ramban, and Ramban's from the Ibn Ezra, and they're all talking to each other, and they're all different, and they're saying different things. But rather to say that what we're talking about is textuality, not just text, that things that don't even look like words are still texts in the sense that they are open to engagement, that the world is a book that's asking us to read it again and again, to look at every side of the bird, the plant, the flower, the human being, the war, the plague, the whatever, to be able to look at it and to relate to it not just as random events or not just as things, but rather as potentially meaningful occurrences. And then how does Torah bring, we, Torah then is required for us to help ground ourselves in a framework of meaning, to help these things come to a sense of coherence. Right? And I, you know, I, I look at the events around me, whether it's, you know, COVID-19, homelessness in the city, um, m me letting my mouth get away with me and accidentally offending a friend, 
all of these things, right? And Torah helps provide a sense, a line in on these things that help them come to be meaningful. I don't mean to say like, oh, really, it's all code and it's like, a, it's a prophecy that will be fulfilled, but rather Torah provides for us a path to navigate these events, to help us respond to them, to help us learn from them. So when I say cipher, cipher is, you know me, I always translate things with highfalutin words. It means code, right? The Torah is the key, the legend that helps us decode the world, help the world come to a sense of meaning. So that's, so A, it was an example of the bridge between the symbiotic relationship between the Torah and the world. And B, also the way in which what we're talking about is how to relate to texts as a way of how to relate to life. The resilience, the creativity, the patience, that's required to come to a mature understanding of what text can mean, those same values and practices can be applied in our living, in our in our own behaviors as well. Does that help? Great. Okay. Thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. Um, our Pierre Carabas class will continue next week at 7.30. I hope to see you there. Um, and we will have uh, again, I'm going to take another mulligan on Parcher Chat this week. I'm so sorry. I've got a friend visiting from out of town, so I will be busy. Uh, but I will see you at Shul at 7 o'clock in the evening, Friday evening for Kabbalah Shabbos, and 9.30 in the morning, Saturday morning for Shachris. I hope to see you there. And Havdalah, oh my God, it'll be so late, um, on Zoom if you can make it, uh, probably like 10.05 or something like that. Uh, I hope everyone has a great evening and a great week. Shavuot Tov. See you real soon.